You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 28 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? Well, I'm a little soggy today, Val, to be honest with you. Oh. I've been, uh, my car broke down oh. out in the rain this morning, but I was saved by a passing kindness of stranger kind of guy who jump-started oh, nice. my car within minutes and sent me on my way. So I've had one of those very nice calmer mornings. It was great. Lovely. Even though I am soggy. <laughs> Lovely. And you? Oh, I'm good. I'm well. I've been on a bit of a binge, to be honest, um, and I blame Qantas for this. Right. Because I um, caught the plane recently to Melbourne and I usually don't watch the in-flight entertainment from, you know, on a short flight because um, usually I have a book and I'm usually reading, but I wanted to pack light this trip because I didn't want to check in luggage so I, you know, freed myself of all of anything heavy and so I was watching in-flight entertainment and I stumbled across Sherlock with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman and I have to say clearly I'm extremely late to the Sherlock party you are but I got completely sucked in to the point where when I got off the plane and back to Sydney I just ended up on this two-day binge of watching of watching Sherlock from season one and season two and so on so that's what I've been doing. So are you all up to date with that now? You know where we're up to? Not quite up to date. I'm oh. on the uh, I'm at the tail end of season two because I thought I did need to pace myself a little bit. I attempted to, you know, fit in a gym visit and some <laughs> grocery shopping. Oh, please. That's no fun. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but yes, I think it's fantastic. And if you, um, for those of you who've already discovered it, yes, very late I am. Um, if you haven't, great show. Fantastic. I love a good crime show. I love a good crime. I, I was actually watching, I have to admit, I have a small guilty secret. I don't watch a lot of television, but I do find myself on a Sunday night watching back-to-back Castle episodes. Oh, my goodness. I really? I Why? I have no idea. I, I think it's the whole notion of watching what the perception of a, an author's life might be I think that's what it is like he just has this amazing like he lives in this amazing place in New York and he clearly (laughs) has like you know zillions of dollars and he just sort of like spends his whole time hanging out at police stations doing research and um with the glamorous detective who wears the 20 centimeter heels Uh, to the crime scene um yeah so I guess there's something escapist about that that I'm really into because clearly my life as an author is not that (laughs) I think it's becoming a lot more popular actually because um our crime and thriller writing course at the Australian Writers Centre is going gangbusters people want to write crime and it's such a popular you know um there's so so many crime books um on the bestseller lists but anyway speaking of um you know fancy places in New York that authors have. Yes. Uh, I came across an interesting link this week on called 10 Stunning Writing Studios. Oh, yes, I 
saw that. I oh, and it's got it. some fantastic pictures of various writing studios from all over the world, you know, ranging from small little studios in the middle of fields but very, you know, funky ones that yeah. overlook gorgeous forests and things yeah. to far more fancy ones. Well, there's one um, that belongs to an anthropologist, ethnobotanist, author and photographer, and uh, he has a dome-shaped library <gasps> hovering over his I'm just studio. looking at that. Yes. Wow. I mean, it looks very fancy, but personally, I probably would end up never reading because I'm not going to climb that ladder every time no. I want to get a book. I would personally be worried that a book would fall on my head. Well, there's that too. Yeah. Um, but then there's, you know, other writer studios that look gorgeous, that are very sleek, some which don't contain any books. <laughs> Not sure how that works. Some that contain endless rows and rows of books. Now, if you had a writer's studio, Al, would you want it to be separate to your house? Like some of these have these little tiny studios, like, you know, in the backyard kind of thing, so you can escape. Or do you want it to be connected? What's your ideal writer's studio? Well, I think my ideal writer's studio is probably something, there's a tiny little one in here. It looks like a little house. It's got big windows it's all timber. Mm. I think it probably looks a little bit like that in the garden. That's my right. ideal. Reality, however, says to me that I would go out there and do nothing and I would be constantly listening for the kids and yeah. procrasty puppy would probably be scratching at the door. And so, I, you know, I write in a room in my house, right in the middle of the house so that yeah. I can keep an eye on everybody if I have to. And it's just I'm in a corner with my kids' pictures all around me and, you know, like that's my reality. I do, however, have French doors that look out onto my beautiful garden so I am, you know, close. Yes, yes. I'm there. And what about you? What's your ideal? Well, I do prefer being it at the centre of everything and making sure that I know what's going on. I like being, you know, near electricity. <laughs> because, no, really? Yeah, we had this, you know, my partner had this sort of plan because um, he watched the movie, well, we watched the movie Tamara Drew, which is sort of centred around an author who has a little writer's studio. And he thought this was so fantastic that he decided he was going to build a writer's studio on the, you know, 14 acres. And... Um, he also came across, I don't know how, a friend of his was teaching at TAFE and they were building a little studio and this was the leftover studio. So he kind of inherited half a studio. Half a studio. <laughs> yeah. So he had these grand plans of building the other half. And so, you know, it sat there for two years in the backyard as he didn't build the other half because you kind of realise that when you do build it, you need heating, you need mm. internet, you need electricity. You and you know what the other thing is? I, I wrote a blog post about this years ago. I had this dream that, you know, because my husband is a builder. So if I really handy. wanted... I know he's a very handy man, does a lot of bookshelves. If I wanted a writer's studio in my backyard, I do have the right man for the job to mm. create one for me. But I also realised that if I put one there, then the pressure to have to go there... Oh is quite intense and I just – I think in, in many ways you're better off writing where you are yep. than trying to imagine that there's going to be a perfect spot for you to write in. I just – I write where I am and at the moment it's in my spare bedroom looking mm -hmm. out my French doors with my kids' pictures around me and it works really well. So I, I think that, yeah, like don't put pressure on yourself. Just find a corner and start. <laughs> mm, 
Agreed, agreed. Um, and speaking of writing, well, we always speak about writing. But oh no, what else do we talk about? Came across a great link thanks to Trevor Young this week, and it's actually a um, poem oh. written by Charles Bukowski. And I thought it was relevant because it's actually called So You Want to Be a Writer. Hooray! Yes. <laughs> and it's gorgeous. So it was written for us then, clearly. It was written for us. We, yeah. I'm not going to read the whole thing. No. Um, you know, it, 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 but just to start it off, he says, if it doesn't come bursting out of you in spite of everything, don't do it. Mm. Unless it comes unasked out of your heart and your mind and your mouth and your gut don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes on. So we'll put the link in the show notes because there's also a wonderful, wonderful reading by Tom O'Bedlam who, and and he actually reads this beautiful poem by Charles Bukowski, um, you know, so gorgeously. And we'll put that link in the show notes as well. If you want to have a look at it, because it's, it's, can I just read my favorite lines? Please do. Don't be dull and boring and pretentious. Don't be consumed with self-love. Mm. The libraries of the world have yawned themselves to sleep over your kind. <laughs> I absolutely love that. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, speaking of libraries di- that didn't put someone to sleep, yes. um, there's an article in The Guardian about the woman who went to the library and read every book on the shelf. <laughs> Wow. Now, it's about a woman called Phyllis Rose who wrote um, a, a book after she decided to go to the New York Society Library and she started reading um, the shelf that was L-E-Q to L-E-S. So all of the authors from huh? L-E-Q to L-E-S, starting from an Edwardian mystery writer, William LeCour, to American um, to an American author of contemporary literary fiction, um, sorry, American um, thriller author called John Lesquart. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh. But basically, the, the result is a book called The Shelf, Adventures in Extreme Reading. <laughs> right, okay. And, you know, it's obviously her insight into the book and the book, the various books and her experiences with the books. But it's interesting how some of, how so many books are coming out these days, um, you know, based on these sort of little experiments, like the yeah. that one about the year of living like Oprah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That? yeah. And, and the Happiness Project was the, like that yes, too. Yes, the Happiness yeah. Project and um, A.J. Jacobs on the year of living biblically. He, he, he just lived like... Like the Bible for for a whole year, which is kind of an interesting and I don't know. I'm wondering if it's interesting. I'm wondering if it's lazy, you know, um, way to think of a book idea. What do you think? Oh no, I love the idea of an experiment. I think it's great. I'm not keen on books about books. I have to say, I, I feel this particular experiment doesn't grab my, doesn't really work for me. The whole idea. I like the Julian. <clears throat> Julia and Julia one with the, oh, yes. or Julie and Julia. I can't actually remember Julia the name. Julia and Julia, yeah. Yeah, um, that, that was a cute idea. And, it, you know, start, it's, it's like I, often these things will start as blogs yeah. because that works beautifully as a blog. The Year of Living Oprah was a blog. You know, those kinds of things. Are like if you can come up with, with a concept like that for a blog, mm. for me they're more of a blog than a book necessarily. Mm. They become a book once mm. you have a whole narrative. They become a book. Um, 
I think that um, they're great. Like, I mean, why not? Like, start with a great premise and go forward. Mm. See what happens. I think is great. But books about books, no. Not I for think me. I would have been far more impressed if she read not just the shelf but the whole library. Yeah, but she would still be doing that. About. <laughs> That would be – that's a lifetime quest. That would be an epic <laughs> – that's a yes. lifetime quest. Yeah. But it's interesting because those sorts of things can be self-contained in a book. But when you have a blog like The Year of Living Oprah or, um, you know, like Chris Gillibo and his book, How He Wanted to Visit 193 Countries in X yes. Number of Years, he's visited all 193 now. Oh, you know, it's like where does, the, where does the blog go after that? You know, a book, it can end. Whereas yeah. a, a blog, like, what happens? Well, you have to hope you get the book deal by the time that you've got to the end of the blog project, don't you? I know, but still, where does your blog go even if you have the book deal? You know, you have to reinvent yourself as the blog. That's true. I'd never thought of that. A shelf life. Yes, exactly, for your blog. No anyway, um, moving on to oh, a great link that I discovered just because it's about the most valuable comic book of all time wow. and it's up for auction on eBay. Now, by the time this podcast comes out, it's probably already going to be auctioned, yeah. but it uh, started, it is of Action Comics number one, so the very first issue of Action wow. Comics. Okay. It's where Superman makes his first appearance, where he meets Lois Lane, well, Clark Kent meets Lois Lane, and it came out in June 1938. Bidding started at 19. Nine cents. Yep. And at the time of this podcast, it is one million seven hundred and fifty thousand and two hundred dollars. Gosh, that's a lot of money for a comic. Yeah, there's still time. There's still time, people. <laughs> Given that the cover price was ten cents in June 1938, it's that's you know quite the return on the investment, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Wow. Um, fortunately, uh, 1%, which is still very large, um, of the final uh, you know, bid is going to go to the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. As oh, you great. Know, Christopher Reeve played Superman in those early movies. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of money. And that's a the thing. I mean, some people, you know, pay a lot of money for rare books. And it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because – you know, intellectually, you know you can go read the book, just get the new version, the new edition. Well, as somebody said, like I read that on my iPad, you know. Yes. <laughs> but, yes. I, yeah, it's funny. It, it's that wanting to possess. It's that, that there's a real drive yeah. in, and whatever your thing might be, you want to have it, don't you? Yeah, but it's just, I, I don't mind wanting to have it, but it's the paying one, almost $2 million for it is the thing yeah. that I don't understand. I mean, like I love old things. You know, I've got vintage typewriters and I've, I've got a 1938 um, Esquire magazine, which I think is gorgeous, and I love looking at it because it just it's so tactile and it looks so different. But there's no way in God's earth I'm going to pay $2 million for something. No, but you're not, you know, massive comic geek with $2 million. And I don't have $2 million I mean, to I, spend I on could, a comic book. I might want it desperately, but I don't have the $2 million to buy it. Like imagine being in the position of like I want this so badly and I can have it. Yes. I just, yeah, I don't I can't imagine what that's like. But no. good luck to whoever wins. Yes, good luck. Yeah. So our writing and marketing book this week is more of a marketing book. It's an interesting book by Katrina Pollard, who's actually a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre. And um, her new book is called From Unknown to Expert, How to Use Clever PR and Social Media to Become a Recognised Expert. 
Now, uh, it's a very good book. It's got some really – it's very practical. So there's lots of practical tips on things you can actually do to put yourself in the spotlight and become an expert. I will say that this is more beneficial for nonfiction authors or, you know, people who aren't even authors and just want to become recognised experts in the industry as, you know, back pain specialists or, you know, change management specialists or whatever. Um, it's um, it, You can use it for some fiction authors, but it's more if you want to be known in a particular style or genre or, or as I said, if you have a non-fiction book and you want to be an expert in that topic, um, I think it's useful for that. I think fantastic. I mean, I think non-fiction authors, you know, anyone who's considering putting a non-fiction book or proposal or has a book together, um, it's worth reading a book like this because this is what people are looking for. They're looking your publicity comes from your worth as an expert yep. is with regards to interviews and things like that. And if once you get, like I know as a freelance or a freelance writer, if, if I'm looking for somebody to talk to, to about a particular subject, the first thing I do is Google the subject yep. and see who comes up and who has spoken on that subject before. Because part of the reason for that is that I want to talk to someone who understands how to be interviewed. Yeah. Um, because there's a, I mean, then that's a probably a whole nother podcast, but there is a real knack to being interviewed and to be able to give your message to the interviewer um, in a concise way and to give them the quotes that they can use, like to understand what a quote will look like when it's written down and how to deliver it is so important. And I love, like if I find somebody that I like, I use them all the time because I know that I can ring them at a moment's notice and they are going to give me what I need. They will yep. say to me, what's the angle of the story? I will say this and then we proceed with our interview and they understand what I need from them. And that is invaluable. And if you can learn to be that person, then you are going to get a lot of publicity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. Thank you. So uh, we'll put the link in the show notes to Katrina's book, From Unknown to Expert. So, Al, what's happening in the world of blogs this week? Oh, wow. Okay. So I follow um, uh, Charlotte Wood is uh, a great um, literary author in the Australian landscape and she has written a post on how to, let me just get the exact wording, some hints on applying for arts funding and fellowships. Um, so arts grants can be a very useful thing for authors who want to spend some quality time working on their book without having to do the eight million things that you generally have to do to stay alive. Um, <laughs> well, you know, with a yeah. sense of food and mortgages and things like that. Yes. Um, so she goes through sort of step by step. She, she was recently a judge for um, a grants application process and she has gone through those and given her, and it is subj a subjective list, but her tips on where people go wrong, what you kind of need to think about if you're applying, how to put your, your application together, um, you know, what needs to go into your covering. I mean, it's a very comprehensive and extremely useful post and you mm. know how much I love one of those. Mm. So I, um, I think that if you're, you know, interested in trying to, to apply, apply for a grant on some level, that it would be worth having a read. Absolutely. It's full, full of useful tips. So it's yes. great. Um, and it's so important that people need to understand that um, you need to, you know, you need to sell yourself. You need yeah. to, and importantly, you need to read the guidelines. I've often, you know, sort of seen drafts of people's grant applications and I look at the submission guidelines and I go, you haven't even done what they've said. You know? No. 
at, yeah. at a most basic level to what they say. Yeah, looking and looking at keywords and all those sorts of things and how you can like pr- promote yourself to fit what they want is yes. important. It's almost like putting a business case together. Exactly. This is why you need to give me the money because what you're essentially asking for is a gift. Mm. So you need to think about, you know, why are you – why are you the person who should receive it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Anyway, so definitely worth a read if you're if you're interested in applying for something like that. So someone who probably doesn't need any grants these days, he's such an successful author, is our writer in residence. Who is it? Our writer in residence this week is Nick Earls. And I have to say that I so enjoyed this interview. I, you know, like I've talked to a, I talked to a lot of authors and things like that, but um, I've never actually spoken to Nick before. He's sort of, we're around us. We have lots of friends in common and all that sort of stuff, but we've never met. And I really, really enjoyed it. He's, um, he was a delight to talk to and he, were, he had a lot of really interesting things to say. So I hope you guys enjoy it too. Nick Earls is the author of 13 novels for adults and teenagers, a trilogy for children and three collections of short fiction, many of which have been bestsellers in Australia and internationally. His new novel is called Analog Men and it's in all good bookshops, analog and digital, as we speak. Hi, Nick. Hi, Alison. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome to our show and thank you very much for coming along. Um, now, you've written 13 novels, the first of which is now, I think, about 18 years old, so old enough to drink, and they've won awards, yes. they've been turned into films, and they've generally done you know, quite well for themselves overall. How do you keep your writing fresh and funny when you've written so many books over so, you know, so long a period? Look, I think that's a really good question. I think when I started out, I think 20 years or so ago, I would have expected that after a few books, four books, five books, something like that, it would have felt like a bit of a production line. I would have felt as though I, I'd kind of learned most of the things I needed to learn and then I could put together a story and just write it. Uh, and it might lose some of its magic. But fortunately, it hasn't. I've uh, recently been working on my 20th book, which, will, which is a children's book for next year. And what I've worked out along the way is that Really, every novel starts out as a new puzzle I don't quite know how to solve yet, and I've got to learn something to solve it. So I think each time I write a novel, I learn a bit more about being a writer, and it still feels like an adventure each time I set out to create something. And the more I've learned, the more I'm aware that I don't know everything, uh, but that's that kind of keeps it interesting. And for me, each time a little cluster of ideas starts to turn into something and starts looking like a story, uh, then I I realise that that's one that one day will end up being written and then it gets its own pile of notes and, uh, and, and off it goes. And for me, I couldn't do this. I wouldn't do this if I, if I just felt I had to put out another book. Uh, really there's got to be something in that new idea that has got me too excited to say no to it. It's the ideas that I can't talk myself out of that end up becoming novels. And do you have those just, are they sequentially useful in the sense that you finish a book and you have a new idea or are you sort of like seduced by shiny new ideas whilst you're halfway through writing a book? How does it, how does it work? (laughs) Almost nothing in my life is sequentially useful, <laughs> and uh, in my work life anyway. And uh, no, my personal life too. I've got a son who's not quite five, so of course, you know, oh. things aren't sequential there. No. I'm forever, you know, badgering him to do things. Uh, so, uh, and 
there is the, the potential for the lure of the shiny new object. But what I've worked out is that if I write an idea down, I don't lose it. So uh, if I come up with an idea that I'm really keen to write and that I, that I think will become something someday, I can actually delay the gratification of writing it now and not lose anything by writing it down and putting it in a safe place. So that way I can stick to the thing that I have to stick to at that moment. So at any time, I mean, the reason I've been able to put so many books out is not because I managed to throw each one together particularly quickly, but uh, it's because I've got things at, an, at, at different stages at any one time. Uh, I'll only be writing one book because I can only focus on one thing to write, but I'll still be able to accumulate ideas for other ones and, uh, and to do that in a way that doesn't interfere with the thing I'm writing because the moment I write it down, I can erase it from my brain and get back to the thing that I have to work on. So in the case of Analog Man, for example, uh, the first idea for that came along about seven years or so ago. Oh. And and change shape a few times in the in the intervening in the next five years, and I only became really clear on what it was going to be about, and that I was definitely going to write it uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, meanwhile, I'd written a whole range of other things, and I think it's much better and much more fully worked out because it's had that period of gestation. But uh, it's not as though I'm just kind of sitting down in splendid isolation, um, fiddling around occasionally with ideas, uh, waiting until things are ready. I've got things that are ready, and while I write them, other things can get closer to readiness when ideas come along. So, uh, yeah, so it started out as, I'm trying to remember how it started out. Uh, the thing that drove me to write it was realising that I had, years ago, written comedies uh, with central characters in their 20s and 30s. And I had a great time with those, but I felt I'd kind of had my run at those and I thought I should only go back to comedy if something comes up that really suits that treatment or if I find a new way in. And I started developing a story about a guy in his 40s who has worked away from home quite a lot and he's coming back to a different job in order to reconnect with his teenage twins wow. while they're still teenagers and, uh, and, and focus on parenting. And in the process of developing that, I realized that 40-something and 40-something now in an era of perplexing technology where many of us are regularly outsmarted by our smartphones, that was a way back into comedy and I thought that's the way to write this. So for the first few years of it being a pile of ideas, it wasn't a comedy and then I realized it could be, and I came up with, uh, with Brian Brightman, a radio star that the central character Andrew has to work with, and Brian Brightman was a kind of, you know, awful kind of dangerous talent to have at your radio station, someone who would always say the inappropriate thing if it crossed his mind, someone who had no filter at all. So what that meant was when I came up with him, it meant that for several years, anytime anything really inappropriate crossed my mind that I wouldn't dare to say even in front of my friends, I could write it down and give it to Brian in the novel. Oh. So, uh, and having that period of time allowed me to accumulate lots more stuff for him and lots more for Andrew and lots more incidents that could make up the story and get some sense of the shape of the story. So so when you came to write it, you had all that stuff ready to go. That's right. And how do you, how do you collate all that? Sort of, I mean, are you, are you a guy with notebooks? Are you a guy with folders? Or are you a guy with a Word document? How do you keep all that stuff together? 
I'm a bit of all three. I'm Are you just, analog or digital? Is what I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, right, uh, and, and and a bit of both. I'm, I'm I don't use any clever software. I know all these things. I hear about these things like Scrivener and whatever that allow you to have virtual post-it notes or things like that. And I think. I actually don't need that while I've got scrap paper in the house and uh, scrap paper can't be corrupted by a virus or anything, any technological disaster. Um, so I, when ideas come along, I write them on the backs of envelopes, old envelopes or boarding passes from planes or whatever and then they just kind of go into a, a file of random ideas. But then I start to get a sense that a you know a new idea comes along and I think, haven't I got something that might fit with that in an interesting way? And I go and find that idea and maybe some others and, and then they start to, and then if there are enough of them, they get a, a manila folder of their own. So my technology goes back to 1896, I think, in that case. Uh, manila folder invented immediately following the invention of the filing cabinet. Um, so, so it's a very yeah, organic so the idea way to write a novel, isn't it? Like you, you're bits and pieces and maybe this and maybe that. It's not, here's my character, I'm going to sit down and here's chapter one and off we go, is it? Well, not at that stage, no. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of the first stage. So I sort of think divergently at first. I toss ideas into the folder uh, if they might fit. And then when the folder gets really fat and I'm starting to get a sense of the character and the story, I actually start to think, who is this and what is their journey and how do I tell it using, using the best of what I've got here? So then I start to think convergently and work out which of those ideas I'm going to, look, going to use. And I've got various plotting tools that I use where I'll draw up a timeline or I'll, I'll know that there will be particular scenes that I'll want in there and I'll have several different plot lines and there'll be several, and I'll have a sense of how each of them will play out, and I'll write those notes on cards and spread them out on the floor in their different plot lines, and eventually merge them all so I can pick them all up and have, you know, 60 scene cards in the order I'm likely to write them, or at least a good working order, and then I create an outline document. Wow. And in order to get to that stage, I've put in a lot of thought about the characters and the story and found a lot of the details and thought, you know, thought, how will this person observe this particular thing? What details can I find that will let the reader know about the situation but will also be telling about the character? And along the way, I start to hear them talk and oh. I make note of the dialogue and that allows me to kind of construct each one as an individual. So all that process goes on before I sit down to write the first draft so that when I sit down to write the first draft, I've got an outline typically that's over 20,000 words long uh, with chunks of conversation in it and then I write the first draft into that outline. Wow. And I think that that process is why I don't get writer's block. Um, and I know that people kind of, it varies. Um, there are some people who will set out to write a novel based on half a page of ideas uh, but that's a very different process and often a much slower process and a process that might involve throwing a lot of words out along the way. Yes. I prefer not to, not to generate too much stuff that I'm going to throw out, so I prefer to answer lots of my questions when I'm in that kind of developmental stage before I sit down and do the first draft. And you might be develop, developing two or three different things all at the same time, is that right? You might yes, be developing right. two or three and different ideas? Yes, and uh, there will 
if I don't have another new idea, I'll have plenty to write over the next five years because I've got ideas there. Uh, but what I hope will happen is that I will keep having new ideas and and I will keep adding ideas to the folders of ideas that are in development at the moment. And And really what happens is that I've got a range of things that I might then really put to the test and develop into an outline. And once I, once it gets to that stage, it's going to be the next novel I write. And usually it's the one that's bugging me most and just demanding to be written of all the piles of ideas when I think I can't resist writing this one anymore. I really want to write it. And I think that's a really good way to feel uh, as you're about to embark on outlining and then writing a novel because, you know, it's um, it's a lot of words. It's a lot of tough days of writing. So if you're feeling at the start that you're desperate to get into it, then that's so much better than just sort of thinking, oh, yeah, this looks like the next one, so I guess I should give it a go. It's interesting you say that because, like, that's, from what you're describing there, that sort of phase of things is quite a time-consuming thing. I, I read, I really enjoy your blog, and you wrote in a blog post about your novels being sort of a snapshot of now in the sense of, you know, you're talking about this with this particular mm. book, um, but yeah. all of your books about where you're at at any particular time. And this idea of books dating, and th- that particular blog post includes a long discussion about pubic hair fashion, which I found quite funny. But how long, you know, does it take you to actually, when you, when I say write a book, from, from that developmental stage all the way through to the end, how long can it take to see it on a shelf? And how do you manage to make that now with sort of time passing as, you, as you're even working on it? Yeah, look, in the case of this novel in particular, um, that, was, that was an issue that I had to really think about. Um, if I'm setting out to write something and set it in the 1980s, then the 1980s is fixed in time already, yeah. so that's easy. Yeah. But if I'm setting out to write something now, I have to work out when the now is going to be. Yeah. Uh, and if I start planning something in 2007, I have to think, am I going to set this in 2007 or am I going to try to set it round about the time I write it and, and also the time it comes out? So Analog Men was in that category. So, yeah, so some things did have to go. So... Uh, and and some of them I worked out along the way, and I thought, what was it that appealed to me about that thing? What does it mean? Is there something in 2013 when I was writing it that means the same thing that this did in 2007? And you know, the, the height of people's pants have changed, and <laughs> and, uh, and and I didn't notice that, but my editor, my, I mean, and it was of course true. Uh, I'd noticed it in life, but not as a novelist. And my editor, so my my publisher, uh, in her email to me said, uh, you know, this kind of. Uh, Tramp and T-bar thing when she bends down and, and all that. Uh, that's really quite a few years ago. Or are people in Brisbane still dressing that way? I had to go, no, no, it's just that I hadn't noticed. Uh, I don't get out much. So, But mostly I try to pick things up myself. Uh, but it is, a, it is an interesting thing to, to have to face. And in the end, very few readers... Uh, are going to get too picky about that. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, you still want to try to get it right because you don't want people to stop and have to think a thought that's outside the book. Yeah. You don't want people to think, 
Oh, really? I wonder why she's wearing those in 2013. Yeah. What does that say about her? Yeah. Like, I only want them to do that if I want if I want them to do that. I don't want them to do that because I've made the wrong choice. I'll, I'll put a link to that particular blog post um, in the show notes because the business um, where she's wearing the, you know, hipster jeans with the G-string underneath, is, is yes. like, it made me laugh. And, of course, that's um, it is something fashion does change. And, you know, your jeans go from bootleg to skinny without you noticing necessarily. And I think it's um, it is a point when you're right a long-term project, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, and it's a particular particular challenge for those of us who are who are fashion challenged anyway, because <laughs> you know, surely, <laughs> surely, surely, black tracky dacks never go out of fashion for the author. Your pants uh, have always been The high. rest of the world, people. Are, <laughs> no, no. I've seen. I watched my dad, my dad. Right? <laughs> watch my dad's pant heart, and I just I'm determined never to go there. So uh, yeah, I'm if if I start to if I start to think that my belt is touching my ribs, then really I I need a lot of help. Uh, I, and I have people around me who will stop that. So yeah. <laughs> All right. So just going back a few years, how did you actually come to have your first novel published? Can you remember? <laughs> I can't. It was a long time ago, but not that long ago. Um, so I, well, I'd had a collection of short stories published 22 years ago. Yeah, in, yeah 1992. Yeah. And um, that had sold, that sold 900 copies mostly to my mother. Yay. So, um, yeah, thanks, yeah, Mum. Thanks, yeah, but it got me an agent. So it was shortlisted for an award. It got me an agent, and that sort of changed the situation I was in slightly because it meant that I could connect more effectively with the industry. Yeah. Uh, I think the industry's changed a bit now. You can connect with the industry worldwide electronically, but um, 20 years or so ago, uh, that really wasn't the, the case. Mm. So then in, um, in 1995, I... I took the pile of notes I'd been compiling for a few years and I wrote, I wrote a novel and I entered it in the Vogel competition for you know, writers under 35 as I then was and, uh, and it didn't, didn't get shortlisted by the judges but uh, Alan and Unwin read every entry anyway right. and they, they read it and they held it back and held it back and held it back, thinking about whether they would sign it up or not. And they signed up the winner, and they signed up the runner-up, and they signed up the next one from the judges' shortlist. Uh, and they decided that they just couldn't quite stretch to signing four books. So it didn't get picked up in the Vogel. But I heard my agent told me that Laura Patterson, who had just become an associate publisher at Transworld, was putting together, was at the start of putting together a new Australian fiction list and she would be at the Brisbane Writers' Festival and coming to the Young Writers' Nighttime event that I was part of. So my agent said, pick your best live work, uh, get it in great shape, catch her attention, and um, she's the next one we'll try with. Wow. So I did. I, I picked a piece that was designed to work live. Uh, I... I got so stressed about it that afternoon. I had a migraine, so I had to medicate myself and lie down for several hours. So then I, I stopped vomiting as I got up. And uh, in a fairly disheveled state, which only suited the story, uh, I got up and I gave it everything. And the next day, Laura Patterson came up to me and said, uh, I hear you have a novel manuscript. I'd like to read it. 
and that was Zigzag Street, and she published it a year later. Wow! So that was how that was what it took to make that come about. Wow. Okay. So a migraine, vomiting, and giving it your best. There you go. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, <laughs> what I'm trying to do, what I've tried to do since then, is cut out the migraine and cut out the vomiting, and just focus on <laughs> giving on giving it, it my best. <laughs> Do you um, do you sit like you know you're sort of known as Nick Earle's guy who writes funny books? Do you sit down and set out to be funny? Is that possible? Oh, it's not easy, no. uh, and I think if you do set it, sit down and set out to to be that uh, without things that are pulling you there anyway, it's probably pretty hard to do. Yeah. So, and it's not something I overtly try to do all the time. Uh, I've certainly done it with Analog Men, but it's the first time in more than a decade that I've really set out to write a kind of full-on comedy. Yep. And I think the the thing you need to thing I need to do anyway. I can't sit there and you know manufacture punchlines uh, or even comic situations. Uh, but I think you just need to be vigilant for ideas with potential and lines that might work. And also create the environment that allows the comedy to come to you. Once you start to get to know the characters and what you're going to put them through and start to imagine them talking to each other, if you've got it right, you'll start to come up with great dialogue for them anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's much better to kind of find that way in, I think, rather than try to manufacture bits and then bolt them together. So, uh, and, I, and I actually enjoy that process more and... Uh, when I realized this was going to be a comedy, I thought, I'm just going to give it enough time so that I, so that I come up with enough material, so that I'm not sitting there writing the novel thinking, here's that chapter that's not at all funny that you have to bung some funny stuff into uh, because I've got stuff there anyway. Yeah. And, and when I connected with the voice of the character with Andrew and the way he was looking at things, I found plenty more as I wrote it. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's how it goes. If you create the right environment, that stuff just comes to you. So, so some of the things that, some of the comic things that are in there are there because I'd, I'd accumulated them over years and planned them. Some of them I found uh, as I was writing. And I kept refining that through the drafts. I mean, you, you get the chance to, to make it funnier if you, if you want to. And for me, in, an, in the kinds of, if I'm writing a comic novel, there are kind of three different sorts of comedy I get to use. I get to use the wry observations made by the narrator. Yeah. Um, I have conversations between characters in which they can say, things that crack me up and therefore hopefully will crack other people up and I get to and I started this with Zigzag Street having no idea if I could make it work I get to actually try slapstick on the page and you can make slapstick work on the page uh, and the key I think is to is to is to do it unashamedly and not back off and make sure the stakes are high and that's where that's where a novelist is, I think, most different from a stand-up comic. If you're writing a novel, you get 200 pages or so to set up the scene yeah. and make the stakes enormous for the character. So the payoff is way bigger than it would be if you saw that scene in isolation. And so that's kind of what goes on behind the scenes for me when I'm planning these things. Is I'm thinking, can I really get away with that? Can I really make that scene actually work? And the fear that I won't make it work is what makes me work really hard to put it in a context in which I've made it as close to bulletproof as I can so that when people get there, they're with me, they're with these characters, and that scene will be funny. Have you ever had a situation where you've written something that you thought was just hilarious and amazing and it's gone to your editor and they've come back and gone, it's just really not working for us? 
Uh, yes, there will be times when they go, where they'll say, it didn't happen with this novel, I can tell you, tell you that, but there have been times when, uh, when they've said, uh, I didn't find this particularly funny and neither did whoever. Oh. Uh, so, you know, someone else. And so, so then, but, you know, it's good to have those questions asked of you because then you look at that bit uh, and you think, was it supposed to be funny? And sometimes you can write, the, write back and go, it's okay, that bit wasn't supposed to be funny. Um, <laughs> but, but obviously, obviously it's not doing its job if they haven't, if they thought it was supposed to be. Um, but very often you, you look at the thing and think, okay, do I need that for the story? I want to get maximum, I want to get maximum value out of this. Can I edit that out? Uh, or is it essential to the story? And if it's essential to the story, what role does it play? Does it need to be a comic scene? If it is essential and it is a comic scene and it's not working, what can I do to, to, make, it, to make it work better? And usually the answer is I can increase the stakes. Right. Uh, if it's mildly embarrassing now, I can make it massively embarrassing right. in, by, by, by having more people there to see it. Or you know, There are various things you can do. Or, or by having more, the character investing far more in that moment and really needing it to go well, and then if it goes badly, it's much funnier. Yeah. So, I mean, what this, what that kind of comedy is about, uh, is about survivable disaster, <laughs> and uh, about the reader being able to look at it and go, "I'm so glad that's not me," uh, but clearly it's not going to kill him. He's going to get through, and that's fine. Uh, but I'm so relieved that I'm not the one who urinated on that cat or whatever. Okay. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> or whatever. Okay, so you, given that you, you, you're writing for children, you're writing for young adults and you're writing for adults, do you approach – are there differences in the way that you go about doing those things or are you basically Nick Earls writing? You just happen to be writing for different audiences. I think there are – across those three age groups, I think there are two versions of me. Uh, I think the version of me who writes for adults and the version who writes for young adults is doing essentially the same job, yeah. uh, but working with central characters of different ages. Yeah. Some stories really lend themselves to having a teenage central character. Yeah. And from my point of view, when I'm writing the kind of thing that my publishers have marketed as a young adult novel... I'm not writing a young adult novel. I'm writing a novel that has a teenage central character. Okay. And if I get that right, if I get into that character's head, uh, then some teenagers now uh, will be able to relate to it. Okay. So, so those to me, as, as a writer, don't feel very different. Yeah. Um, but writing for children might well be different. So when I wrote the Word Hunters series, the, the main characters in that are 12 years old. Uh, it's written in the third person, and my, most of my fiction is first person, mm -hmm. and it's very narrative-driven. Yeah. And uh, it was the, it was a new experience for me writing for that age group, and and I I had I thought I had a great idea, and I had great details, and and a story that I really wanted to tell. It's a it's a massive time travel adventure series yep. based on etymology. So yeah, the, the main character, yeah. So they discover a dictionary and off they go into the past. And, uh, and I love that idea. And I love the finding the details for it and working all that out. But I knew that I didn't have experience writing for children. So I said to the publisher early on, um, I'm going to need good editorial backup here. I'm going to need you and whoever uh, is the hands-on editor with this 
to go to scrutinise it from the perspective of what works for nine to twelve year olds, yeah, yeah. and uh, and help get me back on track. So in fact, the Word Hunters books uh, had far more editorial suggestions uh, than Analog Man, uh, despite being much smaller books. Wow. So uh, so I'm still I'm still kind of working that out. Uh, but for me, that was quite a different approach. Uh, and, and essentially, the difference there is that those stories are very narrative-driven. I still wanted to get the characters right, but I wanted to have lots of story and lots of action. And uh, and and I went about it in quite a different way to the way I've written my fiction for adults and teenagers. And you're working on? Did you say you're working on another children's book at the moment? Did I make that up? I, I am. Yeah. yeah. And no, I did say that. That's right. Are you finding that process like now that you've done the three word hunters? Are you finding this new project? You know, is it? Have you found yourself into that space a bit more? Like, do you feel like you'll need less editorial suggestion or not? I'll find out soon. Oh. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. I expect I'll probably still need quite a bit. Uh, I think I'm still working some things out there. I think one of the things that word hunters taught me was not to overthink that. Right. Um, when I started writing Word Hunters, it was hard to put out of my mind the thought that I was doing something different and writing for an age group with whom I didn't have really regular contact. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's quite an obstacle. And I think one of the things you most need to do when you're writing almost anything uh, is when you're actually doing the writing, put the readers out of your mind, okay. put everything out of your mind except doing justice to the story and the characters. And, and I forgot that for a while uh, with the first few thousand words of Word Hunters. And it was only when, when I got suggestions from my editor that all looked screamingly obvious. Uh, and, we, and where the editor was trying to teach me the kind of show-don't-tell lessons, and I was thinking, oh, my God, I learned show-don't-tell last century. Uh, <laughs> the idea that someone has to teach me that now is so embarrassing. And then I thought, what's, what's happened here is that I've freaked myself out yeah. about the idea yeah. of writing for a different age demographic. And what I should remember is I can write a story, and I should apply those principles, give it everything the way I always do, and then get the editorial feedback yeah. to tweak it and get it right. Yeah. So I've gone into I've gone into this new one at least less daunted by the idea of writing for for that demographic. And also in the meantime I've done enough Word Hunters events that I've I've done the kind of live Word Hunters show that Terry Whitbourne, the illustrator and I have put together yeah. for twelve, fifteen thousand yeah, students wow. and okay. I've met met quite a few of the kids who've read the books and you know, I've realised that they're human like me and I don't have to think of them as a demographic quite as strictly as the publishing industry might have suggested yeah. uh, and that if I just try to like, give it my best shot, we can then get it in the best shape it can be and some of them will connect with it. All right, so just changing um, course slightly, I just what I'm just wondering, interested in your thoughts on this idea of the author platform that has kind of you know developed and constructed in the last couple of years. Do you do a lot on social media? Do you have a conscious thought of Nick Earls must get out there to to be seen or anything like that? Yes, I do, and uh, my publisher had that conscious thought first. Uh, that was about five years ago, right. and they said it's time that you were on Twitter and Facebook, and then the blogging started a couple of years after that. Uh, I'm glad that I'm there now, and I have a lot of interactions that are really pretty rewarding. And it is really useful to be in contact with people who might read the books yeah. to get a sense of 
how they think and how they operate. Uh, and it's also a good chance to discover new things and, and it's so it's got a lot to offer but at the same time we've got to, as writers I think, bear in mind two things. One is that uh, it can be a big time suck and yeah. we've got to manage that uh, because if we're going to actually put time into the writing as well, uh, we've, we've, we can't spend all our time playing on social media. No. And the, the other is um, the emphasis that's been placed on author platforms and the importance of building a platform and, and all that. And I wouldn't at all say that it's unimportant, but uh, I don't, but I think it's, it's become, sometimes become more important than than the writing that apparently people went into it for in the first place. And, yeah. you know, you will see all these all these experts who might be experts, I don't know, uh, saying that you should be spending 20% of your time creating your product and 80% of your time on your platform. And then when you're, wow. when you're out there on social media, you should spend 80% of the time just being charming people and just charming people and talking about your cats and 20% of your time actually letting them know about your product. So I actually blogged about that a couple of years ago just to get people's views on it. And I think, I think the way it works is that if you're setting out as a writer now, uh, then if you can build a platform of people who, who will take an interest in you, then that can be good, but it's an awful lot of work yep. to do that. And then if they've, if they've been getting something for nothing, if they've been getting you for nothing on Twitter and Facebook and, and Instagram and Pinterest and whatever else you do, then how many of those people are going to make the transition from having you for nothing for a year or two to then being prepared to pay for it? Yep. Uh, and some will, but I don't think it's a particularly powerful sales tool if, if it's seen in that kind of cold light. Yep. Uh, but if you've got people who want to find you on social media because they love your books, then those people want to know about your new books. And that's what people told me when I blogged about this. They said, they said, no, keep telling us that you've got a new book out because one of the re I mean, we follow you because, uh, you know, we want you to entertain us. Mm. So yet again, you know, you're, you're being the court jester. Yes. Uh, but as well, we do want to know when you've got a new thing out and we do want to know the story behind it. And that's what they get. And I think, I think it's really nice as a reader that, that, a writer who blogs and does all these other things can actually give you glimpses behind the process that went on behind some of the books that you might be really impressed with. So I think that's a kind of nice thing to have and it's nice that those things are, are out there and are being archived and won't be lost. So there will be records of these uh, these things. But I, I think while it's important to be there and while it's personally valuable to be there and it's a nice place to be, if what you want to do is make a living as a writer, you've got to also make sure you prioritise the writing that might earn you the money. So true. All right, well, let's finish up with your three top tips for aspiring authors. Would that be one of them? I think it would. I think, <laughs> I think one, uh, one tip would be to read. Yes. Because uh, I think that's very important. And, and really, if everyone who set out to write a novel... Uh, just went out today and bought a novel, there'd be lots more writers um, earning a living. Yeah, so um, true. I, sometimes I think there are more writers out there than readers. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I'm a writer because I, I started out loving reading and I loved what a book could do to my head and that hasn't changed. And I 
continue to want to create that effect in the heads of other people. So I think reading is a really important thing to do. Yeah. Um, I think one other thing that's very important is to to give yourself, to value small ideas when you have them and not lose them. In my case, that means writing them down on scraps of paper or if I don't have a scrap of paper, I will put them on my phone. I am in the 21st century like everyone else. Um, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So value small ideas when you have them. And also, a lot of people who are starting out with writing find it very hard to fit in the actual writing part. Yes. And I think what what we need to do is kind of recalibrate the way we value things there so that, for me, a big part of writing is the thinking. Uh, the thinking is the writing as much as the typing part is. Yeah. So if you're driving along and you're at, at a red light and or if you're on a bus or on a train, I should say this when you're not in charge of the vehicle, if you're on a bus or on a train and, and heading somewhere uh, and you've got 10 minutes to think about the thing that you want to write, you're not going to get to write it. But you might have some great ideas. So think and record those thoughts and build the momentum for the story. Build the, the ideas that might be part of your story so that when you can book time in your diary to write, you've got lots of stuff there to write and you won't just be staring at a blank magnolia colored wall thinking, thinking I want to be a writer now but I have no idea what to say. So value that thinking even as you are feeling frustrated that you aren't getting blocks of writing time. Value the thinking keep track of what you think, plan your story, book in the writing time eventually and, and make sure that when you get there, you've got something to write. That's what I think. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Nick. It's been fantastic talking to you. I will put the link to your um, to your blog in the show notes because I think people should have a look at it. I think it's a really, really, really good example of an author blog. And um, I will also put a link through to Analog Men so people can have a look at that, which I, I, I have a copy here and I'm loving it. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Good. Thank you. Look, it's been a real pleasure to, to do it. And uh, so what are, you, what are you writing at the moment? Well, I'm actually just finishing book three of my first um, children's series, which is coming out with um, Achette. Our first book is in October Great. this year. Yep. So I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, what am I doing? I'm editing. I'm proofreading book one. I'm editing book two, and I'm writing book three. <laughs> that is impressive. And That's I'm talking the way to, to you. I'm talking to you, which is even more fun. <laughs> Because everybody knows that talking about writing is more interesting than actually doing the writing, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, Nick. That's a great interview, Al. Yeah, it was – look, it was terrific. And I think that um, someone who's been writing and publishing for as long as Nick has in so many different ways and areas and films and screenplays and all sorts of different things, Mm. I think, um, you know, like there's a lot to learn from – well, if nothing else, the work ethic. Yeah, like, it was absolutely. fantastic. And I love the fact that he used to be a GP and, you know. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, career change. Yeah. <laughs> We're all about the career change. Exactly. And what have you got for us? Have you got some fabulous new web pick or something <gasps> to talk us through? 
Well, it's not directly related to writing, but I discovered it as a result of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and my new obsession with Sherlock. Okay. Because, of course, as soon as I got off the plane, you know, and we got back home, got back to Sydney, I was like, oh, my God, I've got to watch Sherlock. I've got to watch Sherlock. And I had bought this little gadget called a Chromecast. It was only $49. Bought it some weeks ago. It's practically free, Val. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's just a, a, a thumb-sized streaming device. So you plug it into your TV and then you can use a variety of apps to send movies to it. You can look at your photos. You can listen to music. You can, you know, watch YouTube. You can watch your iView and whatever. And I put it in, you know, I stuck it out of my TV and it worked like a dream, but I didn't have anything to watch, <laughs> you know, because I'm not – I, I – streamed a few YouTube videos under there and I watched right. Sophia, Grace and Rosie on Ellen and things like that. But it was like, uh, what else do I do with it? And I kind of thought, okay, well, it's a really cool gadget and um, I'm not doing anything much with it. But when I became obsessed with Sherlock, I bought the seasons on Google Play, which is you, 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 you get the app Google Play on your iPhone or your Android device or your iPad or whatever. It's, it works on all of them. Um, and you get the app for free, but then obviously, obviously you pay like you do on iTunes for the whole yep. season or, or individual episodes. So the, se- the whole seasons of Sherlock were only about, I don't know, 14 or $15. And um, so you buy them, but then you can sit there with your iPhone and stream Sherlock onto your big screen TV through via Chromecast. And so I just sat there. (laughs) So what you're basically saying is that this has enabled your your addiction to binge watching TV series. I know it's probably not that healthy, but I'm really (laughs) excited by it. Okay, so there you go. I know. It's if you want to binge watch, then you should totally get the, spend the forty nine dollars, and you will be you too can be enabled. Forty nine bucks, it's so cheap. Oh, but the beauty is, you can take that thumb sized device and. Um, Take, and you can plug it into any television that has an HDMI cable. So if you do travel like I do, I can bring it and plug oh, it into my take hotel it room. You. Yeah, my hotel room television and still just use my iPhone to play Sherlock. So you can get your fix wherever you are. Exactly. Oh, Valerie, I tell you what, the world is a wonderful place, isn't I it? I know. <laughs> anyway, that's the uh, sort of um, app pick for the week. What's right, our well, working writer's tip for the week? Well, I, it's actually quite a quite an interesting one because um, I I got asked during the week um, how I keep track of my ideas. So oh. the question came to me in this form: I have so many ideas for freelance stories that I'm struggling to keep track. How do you collate and manage your ideas? So my first response clearly is, "Lucky you that you have so <laughs> many that you're struggling." I think that's fantastic, and I love the fact that I, th- I think it's really important to know to, to know that freelance stories are all around you, and that it's important to kind of write them down while you think of them. Mm. If you hear, overhear a conversation, or you see something, or you read an article, so my response was basically that I. I have um, Evernote on my phone um, and my iPad and I, I keep track of, you know, if I have an idea while I'm somewhere, I keep track of it by writing it in there. But because I'm so lo-fi, basically <laughs> I have a Word document called Ideas 
and I put them all in there. And then when I sort of want to do some pitching, I have a look at, I open up my ideas file. They're all there and I choose whichever one I think, you know, whichever ones I'm going to pitch out. But I also found, and this is the other thing that I said to in response to this question, I also found that I find that if an idea that I think is great will come, to, if, if that comes to me, I know when they're really good, yeah. you know, like you, you know when an idea is really good. I act on it straight away. Yeah. I basically like, because if I have the idea and I think it's really good, the pitch and the publication are going to present themselves to me at, almost at the same time. Absolutely. And so I write the pitch and I send it off yeah. and I act on it because that's kind of like the best way to, I mean, if an idea is hot, it's hot, send it yeah. off. That's basically my, that was my response. What would your response be to that? Um, very similar to yours and almost as lo-fi. <laughs> um, uh, I often get ideas when I'm like out and about and I see things. So either I'll see a sign in a window or wherever, yeah. or I'll see an article in a newspaper that will spark a, a related idea. And, um, so what I'll, I typically do is I take a photo of the thing that sparked the idea and, I have Evernote as well. I have a um, ideas uh, folder in Evernote. But what I can do is email that photo specifically to go into that ideas folder. Ooh. There's a way you can do that in in you know just from your email. Sit down and show me how to do. I that. will. <laughs> I will. So you can email specifically to a folder. So I email it to my ideas folder. Now, of course. Weeks can go by and I forget that the idea folder is there and I don't even look at it until I'm stumbling around Evernote and I go, oh, yes, I have an ideas folder. Because as you say, if it's a hot idea, you're acting on it straight away anyway Yeah, and you don't need to be reminded of it even. So I still do have that ideas folder and from time to time I dip into it and, you know, maybe one out of ten will – eventually, you know, I'll dip into it and I go, oh, yeah, that's idea and I realise it is a hot idea and I need to, you know, act on it. Um, But otherwise it's just a good sort of dumping ground of, you know, so that I'm not stressing thinking I've got to remember. Yes. Yeah, which is is the main thing. You kind of think, oh, what was that idea? And maybe it was a good idea, maybe it was a bad idea, you know. Yeah, I just think I I have to, I basically, I have to download my brain onto, into some sort of permanent way. Otherwise, I don't sleep very well. Exactly. So, yeah, so just download your brain. And I also, you know, the other thing I find too is sometimes I'll be looking at that ideas folder and I'll be thinking, what was I thinking, A? (laughs) Yes. But B... I can sometimes see where I've had three different ideas that actually are one story that yeah. I can then draw together into one actual really good idea. Yeah. And so that's that's a, another reason just to write things down. And I do it with my fiction as well. I write stuff down all the time. I just make a note and go back to it later and think, mm, what was I thinking? But, you know, like it's it's a good idea because then you don't have to remember and you, your brain's not working overtime all the time. You write it on your iPhone? I write it, I write I have little notes in Evernote everywhere and then I email them to myself and I put them into a Word doc on my computer. Mm-hmm. So I have I have several I have yeah, I've got a, a few different mm-hmm. bits and pieces. But the Word doc is I mean every, I do everything in Word. I'm so not particularly <laughs> advanced in my technology, but it works for me, so I'm I I'm think- happy. I think that um, I must have an aversion to typing too much on my iPhone because I, I just – like I was talking to the children's author, Tristan Banks, and he was saying he loves going on long walks on the beach because he lives up sort of far and away, um, and that's where he does a lot of thinking time. And by the end of coming back from his walk with his iPhone, he has written with his thumbs on his iPhone 
2,000 words. Oh, no. I, I no, can't. I don't do that. <laughs> I will go for long walks and sort of cogitate and cogitate and then come home and write my 2,000 words at mm. my desk. Mm. I, can't, I can't do that on No. I, I'm talking about three sentences. Yes. You know, idea for book. <laughs> Word too, I might add cogitate. I'm gonna I know. You like cogitate that? about a few things today. Yeah, I think we should use that. So we're pretty much at the end of our podcast now. What are you gonna be up to until we next speak? Well, I'm gonna be um, I'm doing some tweaks to the mapmakerchronicles.com, which is my new um, website for my children's series. Um, I'm adding some teachers' notes, I've got a few different things going on, and I would just like to say thank you so much to everyone who has tweeted and Facebooked and um, and sort of help me spread the word about the website and the fact that the books are coming. I I really appreciate your support. So thank you so much for that. It's an awesome website and I can't wait for the book to come out. No, me either. Mm. Only eight weeks. Ooh. Eight weeks, gosh. Oh, it's getting closer all the time. Yeah, exciting. And uh, uh, what about you? What are you doing? What am I doing? We've actually got a whole ton of corporate training inquiries at the Australian Writers' Centre this week. So it's like everyone has decided they need corporate training for their for – their, um, Workplace. So that's when we do, you know, business writing, um, you know, one day courses or sometimes customized training for corporate. So I'll be handling a few of those this week. Right. But that brings us to the end of our podcast. Where can people find you, Al? Well, you can find me at alisontate.com. And if you would like to have a look at my children's series, you'll find that at themapmakerchronicles.com. And you can find this podcast, uh, show notes for this podcast, writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. And I'm at valeriekoo.com. We look forward to hearing from you either on Twitter or uh, or, or on Facebook. And um, thank you to, to those of you who have been leaving reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate it. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, do email us at podcast at writerscentre.com.au. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.